HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. HRN is now on Kitsch, the first live streaming community for the food obsessed. Go to K-I-T-T-C-H dot com and find HRN in the channel's listing. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Andrea Rose, Produce Category Manager for the SoCal Division of Albertsons Companies. Andrea and her team are responsible for decisions about what their 336 stores carry, as well as how those items are retailed and merchandised. Andrea is also in charge of managing meat alternative, dried produce, and fresh cut. After completing her bachelor's degree in comparative world literature and cultural studies and her master's in cultural U.S. and Soviet history, Andrea was assigned to a special project in Albertson's companies where she assisted in the implementation of the Fresh Cut program in SoCal Vaughn stores after Safeway merged with Albertson's. As a self-proclaimed grocery nerd, Andrea chose to remain in the industry instead of pursuing a career more aligned with her degrees because she was fascinated by the cultural role grocery stores play in society and what consumer habits show us about the larger social, political, and economic climate. Andrea has been with Albertsons for 18 years. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I, I'm like overjoyed. I like, I, you know, it's just, I really liked you just from the minute that we started talking, but like, I am also a self-proclaimed grocery nerd and I'm also fascinated by the cultural role that grocery stores and consumer behavior and food and food access and all of it. And that's how I got into this whole gig in the first place. So it's just, like I said, just super fun just getting to know you on a whole other level. So I'm thrilled you're here. Uh, no, I'm, I'm very excited. This is my first podcast that I've been um, an actual guest that I listen to podcasts. I listen to so many podcasts, um, but I've never been on a podcast. So thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, no, my pleasure. I mean, as you know, you know, this podcast sort of started as me being like, not how I built this, but like, how the bleep am I going to build this? Like, I was like, what is this industry that I have just like stepped into kind of by accident? And everyone has been so generous, um, you know, with their time and with their like experience and just sharing wisdom along the way. And I find that, you know, it's it can be a little bit like a really beautiful cookbook or like a really perfect recipe when someone has done it and climbed the mountain and then they're kind of telling you at the bottom of the mountain like 
grab onto the left thing. Like it's not as helpful as people who are like one step ahead of you or like, you know, just a year of sales ahead or, you know, and it's really amazing for us as founders and like early stage company people to get to talk to someone like you who's behind the, you know, the curtain, like you, you are making the actual decisions and you know, you know, we tend to be like, well, but our brands are great and our consumers love us, but there's this whole other thing going on that, you know, for us to get just even the slightest glimpse into is just huge. It's, it's just hugely helpful. So on behalf of the listeners, I thank you. No, of course. It's funny that you that you put it like that because it's it's so true that it's it's hard for somebody in our position because we we do fall in love with brands. Um, but again, just because we love something or we think that it's a great idea, it doesn't mean that it'll you know ultimately do well or that there's ultimate yep. market for it. So it's it's very hard sometimes, almost heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. When, when you don't give, when you don't get the chance to give a vendor or like a manufacturer the chance that you think that they deserve, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I like to think that there is there's a Dutch expression that my boyfriend told me that's like there's a cap for every bottle, and I like to think of this industry as you know, not everyone's going to have the same path and not everyone's going to have the same stores or the same consumer or the same best marketing channel. But if you build something good, you will find the people for it. Um, I think the issue becomes how much does that cost and where, what is the end game? Yeah. You know, and that's what I think a lot of companies are running into now, uh, you know, but we can get into that after, because I want to ask you, you know, in your introduction, you know, that you sort of sent over that I was kind of like just joyfully reading, you know, you mentioned you were fascinated. The reason why you stayed in grocery is because of, you know, the cultural role that grocery stores play and how they're sort of this like reflection of larger social and political issues. And I mean, we are having some pretty seismic cultural and political and (laughs) economic issues at the moment. And I'm just curious, like, if you were writing a paper right now, you know, what would the thesis be? Like, what's going on? um, Well, no, I mean, people people will, I'm going to say will, because it's going to happen. They're going to write books and books and books on the effect of the pandemic on the grocery industry and on buying habits. And I mean, anyone anyone who walks into a store or has walked into a grocery store over the past two years, they've seen it themselves from, you know, those first couple of weeks with the panic buying and you couldn't get anything on the shelf, you know, to a year in and how buying habits changed to, you know, people were looking for Bulk, more bulk items, bigger items, you know, things like mm-hmm. that, um, to a year after that, you know, two years later, when now we're going back to, okay, people don't want books, you know, items, they don't want certain things, you know, we're starting to see the return to more eating out and less cooking at home. So, you know, shift away from buying convenience vegetables, um, and buying certain, uh, like what we call wet rack, you know, um, cucumbers, uh, right things like that because they're not cooking at home like they were during the pandemic when they had no other option right so um yeah things like that and just uh less um less frivolous items people right. buying you know so you know things where it might be like fun or this is really cool you know like a, a white strawberry or a kiwi mm-hmm. just less- to add a little joy <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right so um but yeah, no, they'll, they'll, they'll definitely be books and books and books written on every effect that this uh, pandemic has had on the, the retail side of things. Yeah, I mean, and it feels like just, you know, because I, I mean, I have one perspective as like the founder of a food company, but I also have a perspective just like academically that I think is really interesting 
you know, where digital shopping comes, you know, the e-com sort of thing happened and, you know, cooking habits, even though people are eating out more, they've adopted the ability to be able to make rice maybe for the first time in their life, you know, and then you have supply chain issues and inflation and, you know, it's just, there, there seem to be so many cross currents. And I guess the, the, you know, you always hear like grocery stores or logistics companies and there are these massive ships and it's very hard to move a massive ship. You know, you can move a kayak quickly, but like a ship is hard. And it feels like it's been a lot on the massive ships. You know, every other week, there's a new thing to adjust to. There's a new consumer behavior. There's a new data point. There's a new global crisis. There's a new port that isn't getting food. I mean, I just don't even, how, how, how do you even think about making decisions? Or were you for a year or two just like, listen, we're just not making any decisions about anything. We're just that was, trying to keep the wheels on the bus. Uh, that was definitely not an option, not making decisions. Um, no, I, right. I, think, I think the <laughs> analogy that you use um, is perfect about a ship, you know, how it's this grocery stores and grocery chains are this giant shit that you can't move fast. Um, right. Something that changed the moment the pandemic hit because you had to change fast. You know, yeah. every single one of your strategies, you had to be able to pivot at any given moment because you know, where are you going to get, you know, our, our buyers um, in our warehouses, they usually go to very specific growers to get whatever commodities for their strawberries for their, mm-hmm. um, and when you couldn't go to those people, well, what do you do next? Where else do you go? So right. everyone just kind of had to be very fluid um, about every decision that was made. Uh, and then as far as bringing in new items, um, again, it, it when we were making decisions to bring in any new items, it wasn't like our normal decision, like, okay, like where, where are there incremental sales that we can be picking up on? It was much more, um, it was much more, uh, just strategic in that, okay, how are we going to help our customers uh, with get their, through this with their actual needs to get through this? So yeah, yeah, the mindset completely changed. And probably the last year we've started to see the the reshift back into, okay, now how are we going to get the incremental sales? Now how are we going to right. grow business in a different direction and be innovative and all of that fun stuff? Yeah, I mean, because I remember, you know, in our first call, you said something to me. And it was basically like, you know, we've decided to invest, we are something along the lines of like, we want to invest in innovation. And I thought that was just really an interesting way to put it. And it almost seemed like you were saying, like, there was an institutional need, or an institutional decision that we're coming out of you know, fight and protect mode into explore mode, almost like the turtle kind of coming out of its shell and being like, what, what's around? Like, what, you know, what, what are we looking at here? And for emerging brands, especially, it reminds me of something John Foraker wrote a post like a couple months ago. And he said something like in 20 years in the business, he hasn't seen as hostile of an environment toward innovation, whether it's like bigger brands that are innovating or, you know, emerging brands like mine that are trying to sort of like create new categories then in the last several years, and that that is starting to loosen up. Um, And then someone from Albertsons commented, and it, it seems like you guys are institutionally among the first to reopen up, you know, out of the big, big guys, right? And there aren't that many, but you seem like you're thinking about, again, those incremental sales and those basket builders and innovation and keeping consumers interested and engaged in the grocery store and keeping them off of, you know, buying in bulk from Amazon or whatever it is. And I'm just wondering, like, how does that even happen? Like, is there, are you, are you involved in that? Like, or how, you know, how does that sort of institutional discussion take place? Um, 
so I think it's 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 much more of a a bigger goal for our company. So mm-hmm. We have many different um, divisions all over the country. You know, yeah. Shaw's, we have Acme, um, but we have like our centralized leadership um, is in Boise, and so they're the ones that kind of come up with the entire strategy for the company nationwide, and they're the ones who kind of you know, look at the the state of the industry, the state of the market um, and how things have kind of progressed throughout the pandemic and have kind of identified, okay, it's, it's, it's time to get back out there mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and kind of shift ourselves back to being innovative and trying to, um, to set ourselves apart again from our competitors, you know, fresh, right. the fresh cut department where, you know, all of our fresh cut fruits and vegetable bowls and platters and everything like that. Um, that's been one of the biggest uh, departments or categories that has set us apart from yeah. uh, the Ralphs or the Stater brothers here in Southern California. And you were instrumental in creating that as far as I understand. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I, as far as, the company or me myself no I mean you were that's like you're you kind of you know you were a part of that project from my understanding yes. right yes yeah when um I Albertson that was this has been one of like Albertson's big um like categories or, or departments for gosh 20 years since before I even joined the company mm-hmm. um and it was something that once uh Safeway and Albertson's merged that they wanted to make sure that every Safeway store um, had this program in it. And so that's where I came in is where um, as a kind of teaching background, I was sent out to all the different Vaughn stores here in Southern California and kind of taught all of these people how to do this. So basically everything from food safety, uh, people safety, uh, how to do the recipes, how, you know, every aspect of this, of this department and this program, I kind of went into these stores and taught them how to do that for three years. It's kind of amazing. It's funny because now um, as of the beginning of this year, I'm actually in charge of this for the entire division. So it's just funny to see how, you know, you start as like this little lowly fresh cut clerk and then you go (laughs) and then, you know, lo and behold, you're in charge of it for the entire division for 336 stores and working very closely with our national team um, on innovation, you know, for, for all divisions. Right. So speaking of divisions, Albertsons, I mean, is massive. And can, can you break down, I mean, I know, I, I know that, you know, your region alone has like over 330 stores, but that's across three different banners or, right? That And so, I mean, how many stores are there total? And how, like, obviously not every banner, all the different banners have different sort of consumers and yes. target demographics yes. and vibes, I, I guess is very, the word. Very yeah. much so. Um, so yes, so SoCal here, we have 336 stores. Um, Albertsons, Bonds, and Pavilions are the three banners. Pavilions being kind of the, the higher end, kind of a, an equivalent to a Gelson's or a Bristol Farms. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, like, I mean, as far as our, our entire company goes nationally, I couldn't give you a number. It's like thousands. We have thousands yeah. of stores. Um, we are the biggest division as far as store count goes here in SoCal. Right. And I think NorCal is a close second to us. So, uh, yeah. And yet every every market or every division is different. So what our consumers are looking for um, in terms of variety, in terms of retails, in terms of merchandising uh, varies drastically from, say, what consumers in our southern states or right. our mid, mid-east, you know, it, it varies drastically. So it's really fun to be able to travel um either with the company or on my own time and visit other stores and just kind of see what they're doing different and to kind of be like, oh, well, they're doing this different because they're consumers, you know, like avocados, you know, on the the East Coast, it's it's a big, bigger thing now, but 15 years ago, you know, you didn't see a fresh avocado, you know, Virginia, like you do now. So 
eggs were here, you can't walk into a store and not see four different varieties of, of avocado. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I think, you know, the grocery nerd thing, like, the first thing I do when I visit a new city, state, or country is go to the food store. Same. Like, I just think it's like the most fun and teaches you again so much about the way that people cook and the way that people eat and, you know, so much. But you said something that I wanted to bring back a little bit to emerging brands because case in point, right? Like most people will tell you, it's, you know, it's better to do, you can do eight units per SKU per store per week in these 10 stores. And that's going to be better than doing one in these 80 stores or whatever it is, right? Like you really want to not, it, it's not bigger, better. It's not more is more. Um, generally, you really want to start with like the stores where you're going to be successful and then build out from there. That is sort of like the given wisdom for growing a brand, especially maybe in a category that hasn't yet developed, kind of like ours, or you know, doing something in different flavor profiles, or really trying to like do something a little bit different. And the challenge with that tends to be that you know, if we're in you know, some percentage of those 330 stores or not national or whatever it is, we're not really able always to participate in a bunch of the, you know, big marketing pushes. This is true with, you know, if you're regional at Whole Foods, if you're not, you know, national with Sprouts, like the programs are built to cover as much area as possible in a way. And that's the beauty of a digital program. You can reach a lot of people but it, on one hand, it's like better to start small. On the other, it is a little bit of a unique challenge because the marketing options available tend to be a little bit, you know, fewer. So how do you, you know, I mean, I know how we're trying to solve it. Um, but what do you generally say to, you know, emerging brands that are in, you know, 80, 100 of, of your stores or, and not not national and, and not in all 330? Um, I, I mean, I, I would say to them the same thing that we've been doing. It, it really it really falls on like the category manager and then also to just to be willing to work closely with the or the manufacturer to be creative and figure out yep. new ways to, to promote the item and to merchandise the item and to really draw attention to the item. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that's, I think that's just is being creative and not, not being afraid to do the extra work. Um, and, and not that it's like hard work, but the extra, like the, the mental work. Mm -hmm. Really come up with um, a good plan that's going to, that's going to work. And again, every, every division, every part of the country is going to be different. So what's going to work for the 80 stores that you have come into in Southern California as far right. as, you know, merchandising or promoting and, and really trying to draw attention to the items may differ very much um, from a different area, you know, Pacific North. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that, you know, I, I feel like I talk about a lot and it's not always the most fun for brands to hear, but I think especially for, brands that are digitally native and have a really strong D2C presence, when they launch in retail, they are sometimes sort of surprised at how much falls on the brand to do. I think a lot of people think, yay, I got in the store, and now I can go have a glass of wine. It's actually, yay, I got into the store. Now I have to like Work three start working. Hard. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that's just a mental shift that you make very early on when you are a retail brand that, you know, we never, that's how we launched and that's how we started. So we were just kind of, we were trained that way. Um, but I think, you know, in 2019, maybe it was a little bit more, um, you know, we could count on the stores to do a little bit more. And I think, you know, you guys have gotten so whacked with, you know, labor and exhaustion and, you know, just boots on the ground that it's really, you know, I'm telling everyone, 
make your merchandising budget double what you think it should be and put people into stores where they will let you to do anything you can to move that product. You know, whether it's couponing yourself, couponing, you know, other brands with you, doing what you can on signage, merchandising it so it looks really good, making sure your voids are filled. You know, I think we kind of moved away from that, like that good old fashioned shopper marketing stuff for a couple of years. And now I think it's just like more important than ever just to get attention. Are you are you seeing brands kind of pick up the slack a little bit where we need to? Um, yeah, yes and no. Um, I think what is very helpful is when brands uh, partner with a very good, very strong broker. Uh, so here in SoCal, we have a few brokerages that just go above and beyond. Um, they have, you know, really big field teams that pretty much hit every one of our stores within like a, a two week period kind of thing. And it's every, like every two weeks, you know, that they'll be in, in every store kind of thing. And they're, they're the ones that are there making sure that um, the product's on the right shelf or, yep. you know, they're out there putting the coupons on the shelf, you know, for the vendor. So uh, I think we've seen a lot more of that. Um, I think it's very hard for a single brand or a single vendor to to get out into the stores and do that. So which is why yeah. it's so helpful for when they, they partner with a broker um, that that has that kind of um, arsenal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't even, I mean, especially we're an East coast brand. We, I mean, we'd, we would not be hiring a field team, um, but we'd be investing in someone doing that field work for sure. And I'm going to check in with you after to make sure that our broker is one of those <laughs> brokers that you refer to. <laughs> um, but we're going to take a little break and then we'll come back and talk about all the things that you've seen that you like and all the things you've seen that you don't like. So we'll be right back. Did you know that over 70% of diners research a restaurant online before ordering from or going in person? Your digital front door is more important than ever. Let Bento Box design and build you a beautifully branded website. Bento Box websites provide sleek design and seamless content management, creating impactful first impressions and converting visitors into customers. And with built-in commerce and marketing tools like online ordering, gift cards, automated email, and more, you can also grow your revenue and keep your diners coming back. Join over 8,000 restaurants that leverage Bento Box to power their digital presence and deliver great hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. HRN is excited to announce that we've launched our channel on Kitsch, the new food-centric live streaming video platform for interviews, cooking classes, and more. In April, in collaboration with Kitsch and the Mushroom Council, we're celebrating Earth Month with delicious, nutritious, and sustainable mushroom recipes. Check out the latest videos on our channel to see Eat Your Heartland Out host Capri Cafaro, Jupiter's Almanac host Matthew Rayford, and Item 13 host Yoram Akuaku moderate recipe demos with chefs Jeremy Fox and Ali Rosen. Join us at kittch.com to become part of the first live streaming community for the food obsessed. I'm back with Andrea Rose, produce category manager for the SoCal division of Albertsons Companies. Okay, so in general, um, you know, it's very helpful, I think, to know, you know, starting with, hi, nice to meet you, all the way through, we are doing pretty well on the shelf, we'd like to add more SKUs, what does that look like for you? What are some of the things that you've seen brands do that you appreciate and that you like, starting with the initial pitch? And what are some things that are all like automatic kind of turnoffs aside from, you know, the, I mean, we, I can imagine some of the obvious ones, but 
anything stick out in your mind, both good and not so good? Um, so, oh, I, I, this seems like common sense, but have it's a, not. Have a <laughs> back, um, and the first thing I want to know is what makes your product different? What makes it special? Um, I do dried fruit and I will have 10 different um, vendors pitch me 10 different ways that they're doing dried mango. Uh, mm -hmm. So I want to know what makes your dried mango different from everybody else's dried mango. Um, after that, uh, it seems that people or it seems that vendors are afraid to put what the actual costs are on their, on their um, sheets. Uh, and so they'll, they'll kind of give a suggested retail and they'll kind of give you like, okay, this is what the margin would be, you know, at this suggested retail. But again, that makes me have to do the extra work. It's like, okay, well, mm -hmm. the margin does not align with my margin expectations here in SoCal. So it just, it, it is me having to do extra work and having to ask extra questions rather than just having it right there. Right. It's easy for me to see. Um, do you think they're scared that they're going to put something down and you're just going to be like, nope, that's not going to work. Thank you so much. Bye. Like, or, I mean, there must be a reason. I, I, I don't know that part of it so well, because I feel like that tends to be the broker who does that on our behalf. But is, what do you think the reason is? Like, why do you, I mean, I think anyone wants to save you having to do extra work. So why do you think they leave that out? I don't, I honestly, maybe because it's, that's just the way that it's always been done. Right. Um, and maybe I'm, I'm the weird one, but I don't, I don't think so because all of my teammates kind of are always kind of complaining about the same thing is that, you know, just give us the cost right up front. Again, if it doesn't look like it's favorable, um, then that's where it's like that conversation where we, right. come, Hey, this looks like a little bit steep for our blood. And then, and then they can come back with us saying that they're willing to work with us on everyday funding, right, uh, right. get us to the price point and margin that we need to be. But it's just, it's a lot more helpful when you just, you have that cost right up front. Yeah. I love that. That's super helpful advice. And I know in our case, like we just hired a new head of sales and, you know, we didn't have like an in-house head of sales until like a month ago. And, you know, she was kind of like, you're, where's your price list? And I was like, my what? Like, I don't think I even knew, you know, I think you were with me through like one sort of particularly like yeah. struggling <laughs> moment where I was like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't know what Katie is. I don't know what delivered is. I don't know. Like I had a bit of a meltdown, fortunately for you, not with you, <laughs> but definitely with the broker. <laughs> Um, so I think maybe some of the early brands just are a little bit unclear on it, you know, and it, I mean, it sounds really simple not to know how much you cost, but there are different, there's, you know, there are just different things yeah. going into that a little bit. And then, but there is a cost and then there is like a working back to like get a, an EDLP that works for you and. Okay, so that's great advice. Just put the number up front, save save the buyer work. Yes. Um, okay, what else? Um, what else? Uh, so I said, what makes you different? Have the cost yeah. up there. Uh, and it really helps um, after the presentation when you send your recap. Uh, if, you're, if you're asking for something to be on, like to actually bring in something new, then really make sure you put that cost on the email. Don't expect me to open up the PowerPoint again. Okay. Put it on the email. Um, if it's something that you have already been in the the stores and you're asking for, like, okay, maybe adding new SKUs or discontinuing, like say you have four SKUs and you want to take one out and bring one in, really clearly and like bold highlight what the asks are. Again, right. because you're asking, it doesn't mean you're going to get it. Right. It helps me when I'm going through um, my review and I'm we're making all the final decisions to be like, okay, that's right. This person wanted to discontinue this because it's down 53%, and they want to try adding this skew because, you know, this is where the the it's trending. You know, right? Asians trending right now, so they think it'll do better than something else. So. Yep. 
Okay, that's amazing advice too. Okay, keep going. Anything else? <laughs> Anything, any, all right. So I know that it's a pet peeve when they don't put the price on. You want super clear in the emails. Um, you know, any anything that you've seen where anything in a deck ever and you know you don't have to talk about ours it's fine but is there anything that you've seen where you're like wow that was that that worked um oh that worked uh well wait i have one more not work oh yeah 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 i love it big pet peeve is when um and again, not everyone does this, but sometimes people try to manipulate the data to tell a certain story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not that the data is wrong. They're just kind of framing it in a way that either works to their advantage right. or, you know, and, and a lot of times we can just tell right off the bat because we run our own numbers and we have, we, we know what's going on. Uh, right. And so it just automatically just kind of leaves it back. The last two weeks, we did like 45 units per skew. <laughs> right. Yeah, <or laughs> Which is like interesting because, yeah, it's normally yes. three. Yeah. Yes. Um, so that's that's always kind of just like, oh, okay, I can see right through this. Right. Something, I love that. Something like it's not that you're lying per se, but you're definitely framing things to where it's not as accurate as it really is. Um, Well, I think also that's in part, and and, um, I'll say it from the brand perspective, that's in part because we're not always sure what we're benchmarking to. You know, when you're early and you don't have a ton of access to data, I mean, in some stores, you know, selling five units of chimmy a week is like amazing. Yeah. In other stores, it's like, okay. And it kind of depends on where we are in the store and who we're next to. Like we're lapping kimchi, but you know, we're not going to lap, you know, um, you know, private label uh, guacamole. So it's like, it, we're not, sometimes I think the whole thing is somewhat opaque so it's like you're trying to kind of, again, going back to a boat analogy, which I, I don't know why, but like, I feel like I'm on this like little boat in the darkness and I'm trying to find like where the opening is. So sometimes we do sort of like, we try to tell a story that makes it seem like we're going to be okay for you, you know, yeah. like. And that's, and you can always, you can always tell the difference between the people who are lacking or who, who who don't have enough information for an actual frame and the people, you know, like big national brands. Right, have got been it. In our stores since the beginning. <laughs> right, right. And they're trying to tell a story that you know isn't. It's just not true. Isn't yeah. quite, you know, isn't quite as true as they're trying to make it seem. So. Yeah, okay. I understand. Okay. Yeah, yeah you guys, you guys are fine. You guys are fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I mean, I can hear it. Cause sometimes I'm like, wait, I don't know. I still don't know sometimes like what's good. And it's because for us, especially too, like we're next to different things in almost every store we're in, which is its own unique challenge when you're like kind of creating a new category or like bushwhacking a new set, basically, as I like to call it. Um, but you know, we think this is pretty good, but then you know, we tend to start off with like, what would be a good velocity for you? And let's see if we can even remotely approach it. And then in some cases, you know, if we can't hit the velocity necessarily, you know, what's the dollar per slot that would do well, you know, for you? I think, I mean, in our case, we just, we know we're so young that these things need to start off as, as a bit of a conversation. Um, but we also don't want to come off like we don't know what we're doing. So it's like balancing that a little bit, I think, too. I think with Haven's Kitchen, I think one of the hardest things that you guys are going to face and that you're currently facing is that you're so different from everything else yeah. around you. So I know like in Whole Foods, you're also in kind of like that meat alternative set with all of those other um like plant-based uh, mm-hmm. and cheeses and kimchi and that kind of all rolls together, just like you are with us here in South, um, in Albertson Vaughn's pavilions. Right. So you're, you're so different that it's, it's trying to call attention to your product and, and how it can really um, 
accentuate a meal or, yeah. you know, so I think, I think that's the hardest thing is that you guys are just so different that you don't yeah. quite fit in anywhere. Yeah. Um, so it's neither did hummus. That's, oh, I always go back to hummus in 2008, you know, no one knew where it went or what to do with it. That's like the thing that keeps me from losing sleep at night. Oh yeah. No, like, and, you know, uh, and that doesn't mean you don't belong in these sets because you, right. you do. It's just, it's, it's almost like anything belongs anywhere as long as you can sell it. As long, yep. as, long as you convince <laughs> the consumer that it belongs there. Yeah, I love that. But I want to ask you a little bit about this because I did, I had a mini breakdown last week. I had a conversation with a very, very smart woman who used to run a very, very big company. And she basically said like people shop by occasion and usage. They do not shop by attribute. So every time there's like a new set of like the natural quote unquote set or the gluten-free set, or in this case, the plant-based set. She's like, they get, they, they're catch-all sets that end up getting redistributed among sort of like the regular folk, right? Like they get sort of put into the other places where they might naturally belong. Um, and it's, it's confusing for consumers because those sets tend to be in different places and different stores. We do kind of see that we happen to be plant-based, but we don't necessarily need to be next to, you know, the plant-based chocolate bar and the plant-based cheese and the other thing it's, and, you know, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. Um, how, like, what is your, general read on the way that people are shopping for this plant-based, you know, we're, you know, we're in sort of this meat alternative slash non-dairy dairy. It's like a, it's like a, it's a catch-all set kind of everywhere. So what's your thought just in general on the way that consumers are moving around plant-based? Um, well, I, I know that here in SoCal, we are very like we and, and a lot of our divisions actually um, are are plant based together. So like our our produce plant based is all together. So you're gonna find protein with plant based cheese, but that's also very weird because our meat department will have some plant based things too, which is separate from our produce plant based stuff. Uh, so rather than having like a one stop shop for all of your you know plant based protein, uh, it, there it is kind of distributed throughout the store um we have the biggest um the biggest set in socal and i think in all of our divisions right um so as far as i i think that that very smart person <laughs> you're talking to I, i'm not going to say that they're wrong per se but i do think that they are they're looking at things too definite because that's right it might be a little reductive yeah i mean thank you because i I freaked out. <laughs> my team was like, okay, you know, every once in a while I'll talk to someone and then I'll like start slacking everyone. Like this is just a founder being kind of, you know, yeah. a jackass. Yeah. And, and like, I'll be like, duh, 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 duh. we need to, duh, duh, duh. you know, and everyone's like, who'd you talk to? Would they say, you know, let's break it down. What are, you know, what are you worried about? But you know, it is, it is a challenge. Like, so all you of know, our data yeah. has definitely shown that people do shop by attributes. Again, what, what the right. percentage of people is, that's, you know, who, who knows. But that plant-based customer mm -hmm. for this segment this cares. Story, they do care. And, yeah. and sure, you may be pigeonholing yourself by being in this set and not appealing or not, not getting the, the attention of somebody who's not buying you know, right. meat alternative, but also plant-based meat alternative is one of the like fastest growing categories in the entire store. Right. So right. more people who are eating flexitarian and who are starting to introduce, you know, these plant-based proteins into their diet because for what, for either for health reasons or sustainability reasons, for whatever the reason right. is, you have more and more people shopping in this segment than ever. And you, and you're just going to see more coming in. So, so that's, that's great to know. And skipping us for a second, like moving us over to the side, let's like going back to sort of like the plant-based meats of the world in a way, like if I'm them, 
I want to be in plant-based because I want people to know that, you know, that if people are going specifically to find meat alternatives, obviously I want to be there. But I also kind of want to be in the regular butcher area as like a, okay, we're just like any other, you know, you can buy your ground lamb, you can buy your ground chicken, or you can buy your ground, you know, fill in the blank, impossible or beyond or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, but you can't really be, I mean, I know that everyone wants to be, you, you got to kind of choose a lane in a way, right? Yeah, no, I mean, yes and no. Um, so, <laughs> so like the impossibles and the beyonds, which um, live in the actual meat department. And then you've also think Garden Burger and... Uh, what's the one? It starts with a Q. Um, but they're they're grocery, so they're like kind of in the frozen. Um, right. Hall. So it's like those have those homes there, and so those consumers know. Okay, I need to make my three stops. I need to go to the meat department. I need to go to the um, the grocery frozen, and then I need to go to produce for all our different things. Um, I don't right. know if that hurts or helps the the. I don't even know if segments the right word. Um, just that whole for the consumer for that consumer who's looking for those items is it right is it more confusing for them to have to go to all of these different spots to get their stuff or would it be better to just kind of have a one-stop shop yeah everything's right there um i like to i mean that it's good to have them separate and maybe that's just because i'm biased and i'm trying to rationalize it um well, I think also it depends on where it is. Like in, you know, from what I understand, and I will be checking it out next month, but, you know, in certain stores, the the set that we're in is in the middle of kind of nowheresville. It's in a refrigerator, behind a refrigerator, you know, behind doors. In some, it's the same exact set. It's in between the cut, you know, zoodles and the, you know, simmer you know the stir fry kits and it really doesn't seem to even within stores the set moves you know and it's a it's I guess it just depends and I think part of part of my sort of like fantasy is like the garanimals you know which is not going to make sense at all for a grocery store where it's you know you have one set that's you know and I, and it's funny i had wade yenny on like a few months ago and he was saying there was actually a store that tried to um you would love this as like a grocery nerd apparently there was a store it was like a a branch of food lion and they um they had like a five-year run i think but they tried to merchandise according to the way that you shopped and you ate so the eggs and the bacon and the granola were together and it wasn't, you know, you had eggs and dairy and you had bacon and meat and you had granola and grocery. It was just, it was more sort of like the intuitive way that people shopped. Um, and it didn't work at all. <laughs> so, so like, I feel like that could be an interesting case study, but I do think that there are, I mean, in a lot of the independent sets, we are in a set where it's like, near the rotisserie chicken or like near the, you know, veggie burgers. And I grab my, you know, my protein, I grab some veggies, I grab a sauce or two, maybe some, you know, sauerkraut or, you know, whatever. And it's kind of like the dinner tonight set, you know, it's just super quick. I don't have to leave that area. I can run in, I can run out. That's, that's, that seems to be working at least, you know, in some of the smaller stores. I don't know about the big ones. Um, I we'll find, I mean, we'll definitely find out as far as our company goes. Um, but I do, I do, I do agree that I can see your product um, doing very well in that kind of an area. Like maybe not so much service deli, but something where it was like a little bit more like grab and go like mm-hmm. um I, I i definitely see that it's just unfortunate that the way that our like every every grocery chain is kind of structured is that there's very specific um categories that are you know merchandised together and if you right if you don't fit in perfectly to that then you're just kind of like well then where, where do you go yeah 
Can you explain a little bit about the categories? Because I think that, you know, one, it's funny, very early on, you know, someone, again, quite smart, said two questions for you when I started the company. One is, how are you going to get to a 40% gross margin? And two, who's your buyer? And I was so focused on, like, who's my consumer? It took me, like, a year and the Chobani incubator and really talking to Federico, who I actually did an interview with, to explain that, like, my buyer, my customer is not the consumer, and who's my customer and where am I going, you know, or where are the products going? Yeah, <laughs> me. Wow. Um, like the four, what do they call it? The four P's. Yeah, exactly. Those four P's. And I'm like the what's, <laughs> but like, it's, but it really is. It really, I mean, last week I was like, we got to go back to the four P's again. Like we got to really talk about like placement and pricing and promotion, like, and like, the fundamentals a little bit, because I think people, I think the, the great news about innovation is that we usually do have our finger on the pulse of what consumers want. The challenge is making it fit into an ecosystem that just, again, isn't necessarily structured for that. I love you, that you use that term ecosystem for a, a grocery store, because that is probably one of the most perfect ways I've ever heard it described because it is it's an ecosystem um I'm gonna write this down sorry <laughs> no I love cool <laughs> um, no it's uh, it's and I and I think it's something that we're constantly like thinking about the four p's and I think that it's something that as a vendor like every year whether you have a new item or not you have to revisit those four p's yeah and make sure that everything aligns and that you know, every, like whatever your vision is, um, that everything that you're doing and everything that the stores that you're in are doing kind of align. And I, I know you have very little, um, control on what I'm doing, but that's why it's so important that we keep the conversation open and you yes. tell me, you tell me what your vision is because your vision for Haven's kitchen, um, is what makes it special and I need to make sure that um, on the retail side that I am doing everything in my power to be respectful of that vision but also to communicate that vision on the shelf yeah whether it's with the placement whether it's with the pricing whether it's with you know anything that I have control over and that's yeah. so important and I think that you and I have done so far a really great job of communicating and working together um, yeah. Did you see that little, that little, we did a little mock-up. I did. Of our, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I want to see, I want to see input. Like I want to see like an actual one so I can take it to a store and like take a picture of it and kind of show you guys the effect. Of yeah. Um, I mean, I think part of that is though, you know, you, you've been so responsive on your end, right? Like, I mean, first of all, going back to sort of the ecosystem thing, like, one of the things it's like anything else it's you know ecosystems are alive and changing and shifting and even like rocks are changing and sometimes they change very slowly and it's like not visible to the eye but these changes are happening and it and it's it's interesting to sort of like i think brands have a hard time sometimes it's it's not even so much that like we're not humble or that we think we're doing something so amazing. It's that we also have an ecosystem where investors want us to double our sales every year. And that, you know, how many doors did you open and what's the top line growth? And at the same time where they're saying they also want our margins to be strong, they also want us to invest a lot in marketing, right? So, I mean, I, I'm constantly sort of like, you can invest in all of the brand awareness you want. If you're not available and obvious on shelf and you don't have the distribution, people are just going to look for you and get frustrated, you know? And that's our sort of challenge. Like we feel like once we lock and load into like the right placement at the right stores, like, and we can already see it happening, then we can go and like put the fuel on the fire of brand awareness. But until then it's sort of like, it's almost going to have the opposite effect. So it's like you have these two ecosystems that are trying to work together 
and they kind of clash in places, but then they kind of like meld in other places. And then, and that's where, you know, just to get really dorky about it, you know, that's the edge effect. That's when you have two ecosystems that like rub up on each other and they end up having not, not like double the, like the life as in, you know, one plus one, but they have exponential growth in that little spot where they, where they hit and they mix. And unfortunately, a lot of money is spent and a lot of people's lives are, you know, I don't want to be too dramatic about it, but, you know, people put a lot of work and energy into building these things that sometimes they just, like you said at the very beginning, don't necessarily work in that ecosystem, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, definitely. Well said, well, well said. Well, thanks. But also going back to what you said about, you know, first of all, you are a particularly like reachable and responsive and supportive, you know, buyer. Um, I don't know if you know that that's not necessarily, um, you know, every category manager. <laughs> like, I, I've, I've heard. Um, you may have heard that. Yeah. Um, but on our end, you know, going back to sort of like what we can do better, you know, how, how is it best to, you know, we don't want it to, we want to build relationships with you because a, we know that it's better for you and us and the consumer. We also don't want to annoy you. Um, and we want to be respectful of your time. We know that you have a calendar that you work on and, you know, not everyone is open to having discussions unless it's going to affect something that's, you know, getting reset or refreshed. So is there any, you know, sort just sort of high level or even more detailed advice you can give for brands, you know, really trying their best to work productively with category managers? Um, I think that's hard. It, it's, it's hard to give something blanket because every one is different and it really has to do with personality. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm somebody who gets 400 emails a day. And so if I don't respond right away, it's not because you're bugging me. It's because literally I have to sift through all of these yeah. emails and, you know, when I'm spending a day or two out in stores and it, it just, it, it piles yeah. up. Um, but I know, but I know, unfortunately, that's not all of the case. That's not always the case with other category managers. Um, not just in my company, but across the board. And oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, I think, I guess. Is there any subject line you prefer us to use when we email you? If something, again, just know how important your your email is and if it's something that needs my attention right away like if you need approval for something that's time sensitive um put like important put like put something in that subject line that really draws my attention and so i know i need to respond to this right now because when i'm kind of right through my 400 emails because i've been in the store all day um i need something that's going to stand out and and sometimes putting that red flag isn't enough so something in the subject line that says like needs immediate attention or something like that mm -hmm. very helpful um, yeah be very careful with that <laughs> i'd be terrified to send you something like needs immediate attention <laughs> I feel like that's like a once in a decade email yeah if it's something that like you've already sent me one email about and you guys are up against a time crunch where you need to right 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 printer um that's when that's really very helpful um as far as how to get other category managers um, more involved or more like I guess it's I guess it's you you need to get them excited about your product um, and sometimes that's not easy because they're just going through the motions unfortunately or they don't they they don't believe in that whatever category it is that they're managing that you fall into um, right. So I feel like if you can get them on board on understanding what's so special about your product, um, then that will make them want to, to go out of their way to, to really work with you. But I know, again, that's the best case scenario. And some people are just going through the motions, like I said, but. Well, I think also, you know, to your point, there's, I mean, I think 
what was innovative a few years ago is now sort of table stakes, right? Yeah. Like having a clean label is just sort of like, okay, you know, like that, yeah, you shouldn't put a product into the world right now that is loaded with crap. I mean, some, I would say some companies might be doing that under the guise of sustainability, but like for the most part, you know, there's, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff and there's a lot of brands. And, you know, what always, I always go back to is like, even if you are Albertsons and you have thousands of stores, you still have, you know, what we used to call at the cooking school, like butts and seats. Like you still have a finite amount of space, especially refrigerated space. Like it's not endless. So at some point, you know, people would call me to complain that they couldn't get into a cooking class. And I was like, there are, there are 12 and we can squeeze in a 13th seat. Like it's not, it's not you. It's just that those seats are taken. And I guess to, to take the analogy one step further, unless you can prove to the buyer that you deserve that seat more than who's ever sitting in that seat, which I think, you know, we forget that we have to prove sometimes. Um, that seems to be kind of, you know, the task at hand. Uh, the key, I think the key word that you can focus on is basket building. How is your product going to help build that basket? How is yeah. somebody picking up a Haven's chimichurri, how is that going to help put five extra items into somebody's basket. Yeah, I mean, that is why we made all of the QR codes go to textable shopping lists, literally so that you can just walk around the store with the text from us saying, oh, I need salmon, Oop, I need scallions. Um, I mean, it was for you, basically, and, and the consumer too, yeah. but also for you. Yeah. Um, okay, before I go, anything that you've been particularly um, happy and excited about in, in your work and in the grocery field and in your, you know, area and your category and just your job lately. I know it's been a really <laughs> intense couple of years. I happen to be on the phone with you during a particularly challenging <laughs> time, but like on a good note, is there, um, is there anything like you're hopeful about? Uh, yeah. Like, just, I guess, going back to the whole meat alternative plant-based, um, I'm just, that's my pat. It's weird. I'm such a carnivore. My husband uh, used to have a barbecue, like a slow smoke barbecue business. Uh, we're like meat eaters. And so when I was given the meat alternative category two years ago, um, I was just kind of like, what the heck? Um, but right. <laughs> more that I've kind of learned about, you know, the category as a whole and the segment and its shoppers, and learned about the future of it. I just get really excited about needle alternative. Yeah. Um, and I know that that one person, that one very smart per lady, uh, kind of <laughs> a little bit about kind of being pigeonholed or kind of put into this segment across the board. You know, not just in Albertson Vons, but also in some of our competitors. Um, I I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that yeah, you know, again. It might take some time, but yep. this, this category and this section and this, uh, it, it's going to keep growing. It's going to keep gaining momentum. And it really is the future. Like you can ask, you can ask anyone in the industry and people are going to tell you that. that plant I mean, that's awesome for us because the one thing I know that those plant-based meats needs is sauce. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think regular meat needs it too. So, you know, I, we're agnostic. We're like, if you only eat meat, that's great. If you never eat meat, that's fine. Gluten, super, you know, super, whatever. Um, okay. I, I mean, I really cannot thank you enough. I think this is massive food for thought. Um, you know, it's just a privilege, honestly, to be able to have someone like you just talk me through all of this and also just to be able to share it with people who might be a step or two behind. Um, now it's time for you to give everyone your cell phone number. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. No, <laughs> please don't call Andrea. Um, but um, I just thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, super fun. Armin, as always, thank you for engineering. Um, and listeners, I've gotten a couple of really nice DMs lately. I don't usually ask you to write reviews, but I just feel like there is some link between the number of people who get to listen to this and the reviews. And I feel like this is good information and in the spirit of sharing it with other you know, emerging brands, let's not hoard this and let's just, you know, rising tide, all of us, write a review, um, spread the word. And honestly, it doesn't really do anything for me personally, but I do think this is great information. And I think there are a lot of brands that just don't have access to people like Andrea and it's unfair. And so let's take that advantage and share it with everyone. Um, so I will be back next week uh, with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.